Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, hello. I'm back. I took. I had a few days off. I was walking deserted beaches in Vieques, and I would say that I'm happy to be back. But that would be a falsehood. That would be fake news. Have you noticed how people just say fake news about everything now? It's kind of like I'm, I'm assuming around the house they do it too. You know, you left the oven on. Fake news. All right. Well, it is a day five of the crisis in Sweden. Uh, I'd like to begin by saying. Which may mean our thoughts and prayers are with you. But if it means something a lot more sketchy than that, I would just like to say, which I think means I'm very sorry. But if I got that wrong, then let me say, which I'm pretty sure means the man is tapping a tuba with a raccoon. You can see how this could spiral downwards, trying to talk to uh, people in a foreign country using mainly Google Translate. <laughs> so anyway, but uh, you, people in Sweden, you understand. Anyway, we're thinking about you right now. We, we wish we knew better why we were thinking about you, but we do understand somehow. We're going to talk a little bit later today. There's been a, a kind of psychiatric vogue of late for speculating on the actual mental health of President Trump. We're going to talk to uh, a, the psychiatrist-in-chief at the Institute of Living, about that particular vogue. And at the end of the show, we're going to talk to our friend Paul Bassett, the New Haven Independent, where they have, I think, a pretty enlightened policy of not publishing the names of people who have been arrested but not convicted of anything, unless they can actually interview those people and get their side of the story. So, um, But we're going to begin by talking about what else, Donald Trump, but maybe more specifically about maybe the man who could do the most to interpose himself between President Donald Trump and the rest of the more or less helpless American public and the world at large. Uh, and that, according to one theory, would be U.S. Senator John McCain. Uh, writing about him uh, in the current issue of New York Magazine is Gabriel Sherman, uh, who is national affairs editor there, uh, also with NBC News MSNBC, where, MSNBC, where he's a contributor and the author of Loudest in the Room, How the Brilliant Bombastic Roger Ailes Built Fox News and Divided a Country. Uh, and as I say, he wrote this week's cover story, How Many Chances Do You Get to Be an American Hero? If you are John McCain, perhaps very many. Uh, and Gabriel Sherman is joining us right now. Welcome back to our show, sir. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. So John McCain, you can sort of argue, and I think you kind of do argue, that this moment was kind of made for John McCain, whose relationship to his own party has been kind of like you know, a drunk getting one of those sobriety field tests where he has to walk a straight line. Well, I mean, McCain's kind of always kind of weaving in and out of either adherence and allegiance to the party, opposition to the party, standing on principle, sometimes caving on principle. Uh, he's a protean enough figure that he maybe can mold himself into somebody from the Republican Party who can plausibly uh, oppose uh, Donald Trump and some of, some of his policies anyway. So you got some real access to, to Senator McCain. What did you learn about him? Yeah, well, you know, it's, a, it's a, both a fascinating moment to, to look at him and, and his career. You know, he's 80 years old. He was just reelected uh, with um, 
more than a 13-point margin to the U.S. Senate. Uh, many, you know, people in his inner circle say this, this is you know, most likely his last term. So, you know, politically speaking, he's a guy with nothing to lose. And, you know, really the genesis of this, this article was trying to understand, you know, if there is going to be a Republican opposition to Trump to uh, constrain uh, the excesses of his uh, administration, what would it look like? And, you know, through my reporting, it really centered on, you know, John McCain, you know, both uh, his stature as chairman of the Armed Services Committee, you know, plus the, the moral authority of being, uh, you know, the elder statesman of the Republican Party and a former GOP presidential nominee, you know, really gives him the clout to, to push uh, the Trump administration on these issues. Um, and I did get a lot of access to him, and it was really fascinating to see him wrestle with uh, all of the, the complications that come with being an internal critic uh, of a White House only uh, one month into a new administration. Right. So he's the elder statesman of the Senate, but he's not the elder statesman of the Republican Party in the Senate who can necessarily depend on a lot of people flocking to his standard on the field of battle. But we know that uh, in in the House, uh, opposition to Donald Trump or the willingness to, say, do serious investigations into some of the pressing questions about the Trump administration is weaker than it is in the Senate. But in the Senate, Republican willingness to take on Donald Trump is weaker than John McCain, other than his longtime comrade in arms, Lindsey Graham. Um, Gabriel Sherman, it doesn't seem as though there are that many people he can really depend on. Yeah, you know, that's that's a good point. And uh, we did talk about that in our interviews. Um, you know, he joked that, uh, you know, this is not going to be a chapter in profiles and courage of the uh, for the Republican Party, because um, you know, he staked out a very strong position when it comes to uh, all of the allegations of Trump's ties to Russia. And, you know, he is uh, frustrated that more of his Republican colleagues um, have not spoken out forcefully when uh, Trump has overturned what has been, you know, more than four decades of sort of Republican uh, orthodoxy on foreign policy when it comes to being, you know, strong and, and a proponent of, um, you know, standing up for, for human rights and democracy. So, you know that is a that is a frustration, but I think he is going to use um, you know his position to try to push the party. And what I think what he's calculating on is that the tide of public opinion, and we're already starting to see this, as more and more revelations come out about uh, Trump's alleged ties to Russia. The New York Times and others have reported that Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign manager, was in re uh, repeated contact with Russian intelligence officials during the campaign. As the picture becomes clearer that Russia did play an overt hand in, in steering uh, the election in Trump's direction, and the allegations become stronger that Trump's campaign was in cahoots with Russia. McCain is banking on uh, the public putting pressure on the, on the Republican-controlled Senate to really go after Trump. And I think that's why, you know, while he's frustrated in the short term, I think in the long term he thinks things are going to go his way. All right. So let's hear a little clip of John McCain talking about what would probably be the pivotal issue. There are many things that have already happened in the first 30 days that might uh, alarm people or, to, or appear to be sharp departures from normal presidential conduct. But there's one issue that stands out as probably most likely to mobilize bipartisan opposition. Hear it. It's clear the Russians interfered. Now, whether they intended to interfere to the degree that they were trying to elect a certain candidate. I think that's the subject of investigation. But 
the facts are stubborn things. They did hack into this campaign, and they did it, uh, I think, with some of, at least what seemed to be effective, of a sort of uh, every week or so there was new information. And were they hacking the Republicans uh, the same way, the Republican National Committee? And if so, why didn't they? There's a whole lot of issues out there. It requires an investigation. That's John McCain talking to CNN's Jake Tapper back in December. There's been more information that's come out since then. So, um, Gabe, in an ordinary situation, I mean, you know, we've even heard Mitch McConnell say what he thinks about Vladimir Putin. He doesn't think much of him at all. Uh, And in an ordinary situation, the shock that would attend the notion that American political sovereignty had been compromised by the intelligence arm of a foreign power that really would just rock the country. Um, And and it has rocked some people. But it's occurring in such a noise-filled environment that isolating it as a signature issue is a big problem for anybody, including John McCain, I would think. That's true. Uh, You know, he has a couple of things working uh, against him. Yes, one, we have a, a fractured uh, media culture now where Donald Trump has one of the, you know, uh, as larger, if not larger megaphone than the national media through Twitter. Um, and, you know, just rewinding, if you think about going back to uh, another political scandal that rocked the country to its core, Watergate, you know, that was uh, occurring in an environment where we had, you know, three, only three broadcast networks and a couple of major national newspapers uh, like the Washington Post, who was advancing that story. And, and there really was, that was the dominant narrative. There were no other competing storylines. We're in just a much different time now where it's very hard for any one story to break through. The other thing that uh, McCain has working against him is that, you know, this is a Republican-controlled Congress investigating a Republican uh, administration. And, you know, as much as Republicans are wringing their hands at Donald Trump's uh, tweets and his outrageous statements, the the sort of cold reality of it is that uh, they, and I include John McCain in this, really like a lot of what Donald Trump is doing. They like his plans to slash regulations. They like his tax-cutting plans. They like that he's pushing to repeal, uh, and we don't know what's going to happen with Obamacare, but definitely try to repeal the law. So on a sort of a domestic policy basis, they want all these things. So there's not a, a lot of um, uh, momentum to dig in and sort of and rock the Trump White House because they want to get their bills through Congress. Um, but I think, again, I think over time, as more and more comes out, the, the public pressure will uh, exert itself and the Senate will you know, do its job, which is having oversight over um, the, uh, the executive branch. I mean, that's Congress's or the legislative oversees the executive. So that's I think uh, hopefully, and, I, and I'm, I'm putting an asterisk here, uh, the hopefully uh, part, I think our constitutional system uh, should, should work. Uh, but again, Trump has defied all laws of political uh, gravity. So you know, I'm not going to bet 100 you know, percent on this. Right. And I think you do a very good job in the piece. By the way, we're talking to Gabriel Sherman, uh, who's got the cover story in New York Magazine about the role uh, that uh, John McCain plays in opposing Donald Trump or can play in opposing Donald Trump. You do a good, very good job of sketching out how the cost of doing something about this uh, is maybe a little too high right now. But the cost of doing something about this and doing something probably means convening some kind of independent hearings on this with subpoena power. Um, The cost of doing something about this will go down if 
his poll numbers go down and the cost of doing nothing will go up if he remains in office unchecked and his behavior becomes more and more aberrant, more and more problematic for a lot of Republicans. But the the notion anyway is that, you know, that, that McCain could be sort of this huge magnet with the rest of the Republican senators and maybe even Republicans in the House being like iron filings, being kind of pulled along uh, with him in his force field. But he's got a ways to go to get there, right? There's some invisible threshold that, that you know, that Mitch McConnell and, and Paul Ryan are looking at that nobody else can see. Well, that's true. Um, you know, you could use your analogy, you know, uh, a magnet, or you could use a football analogy where, uh, you know, McCain is the, 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 the sort of fullback or the, the offensive lineman clearing a path for the rest of the party to, to run through. Um, but, you know, we have a, you have a, a ticking clock, and that ticking clock is the 2018 midterms. And as, as the Republicans on Capitol Hill look ahead to their reelections coming up, and if Trump's approval ratings continue to slide, I mean, he is at, we should remind everyone, Trump is at historic lows for uh, a new administration. Uh, there, there will be less and less of a cost of openly defying him. So I think that ticking clock in terms of when Republicans make the calculus about breaking or, or not with Trump will, will, a lot of it will be determined by the, uh, the election cycle uh, coming into 2018. I thought, you know, what McCain says in your article, I don't mean to wreck your article for everybody because there's lots of other things to read about. It, but McCain says, you know, this the, the assault on our electoral system is as serious to him as a, a physical attack like Orlando that that to compromise uh, the political process of America with any particular goal in mind is something very serious to him. And and in a way, you know, the notion of having some kind of independent commission, I mean, the ideal thing, and he alludes to it in your article, would be something akin to the 9-11 commission that was really freestanding, had subpoena power, couldn't really be meddled with. But a commission like that could investigate and find a lot of different things, not all of them splashing mud up on the Trump escutcheon. I mean, it could just be that the Russians were, for their own reasons, trying to meddle in this election. And we just need to know every detail of that. How did they do it? Why did they do it? How could we prevent them from doing it in 2018 or 2020? All of those things are vitally important to know and don't necessarily have to kneecap Trump, right? There's a Trump piece of this, uh, of what his people did, whether his campaign people were in touch in a very a significant way with them, with the Russian intelligence people during the campaign. There's a lot of questions, but this, uh, an investigation like the one that McCain is pushing for doesn't necessarily have to, to bite Trump in the ankles. Of course not. Um, but again, Republicans know that once investigations get started, you can't control where they go. And they're making the cost-benefit analysis of, yes, there is a chance that they'll just find evidence of uh, you know, Russian uh, psychological and propaganda operations that, that steered the election towards Trump. But they may find, you know, more nefarious forms of corruption or, or collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian officials. And that, again, I just think they're, they're very gun-shy about opening up a can of worms without knowing what's inside the can. I mean, Mitch McConnell told McCain, I saw him um, uh, last week, and shortly before I interview, McConnell had reiterated to McCain that uh, he was not going to be calling for a bipartisan select commission to to investigate uh, the election hacks. And you know, as you pointed out at the top of that question, there, you know, McCain sees this as uh, you know as a, a national tragedy on the scale of a terrorist attack. I mean, he's not mincing words. He's very clear about 
what the stakes are here. And I just think the rest of the party is, is trying to sort of slow walk this to buy themselves the, the most amount of uh, wiggle room. I mean, the only other thing I want to point out, and I mentioned this in the piece, and I think, you know, just to be fair, you know, John McCain is an imperfect vehicle to be making this, this moral argument. And I, and I wanted to be, you know, generous and fair to him, but I also feel, you know, he is the one who, you know, selected Sarah Palin back in 2008 as his uh, vice presidential running mate. And, you know, Sarah Palin, through her sort of, you know, avowed and proud ignorance and, and know-nothingism, you know, helped usher in the age of Trump. So, you know, McCain has a lot, uh, a lot of you know, history here. And I think part of the reason he wants to make such a principled stand is he knows that earlier in his career he's compromised his values for the sake of political expediency. And he knows that history is looking at him. And this is the, you know, the time in his career when legacies are determined. Right. And this has also been very much the McCain pattern um, that he makes a mistake and then he learns from it. I suppose some people would say he overcorrects for it. He was part of the so-called Keating Five. This is a group of people who were involved in, in a savings and loan scandal. Savings and loan scandal, and in, in which you know he felt ultimately, although he, I don't think he was censured or anything as a result of it, but he he was embarrassed and ashamed of what he had done or the fact that his name surfaced in all of this, and he became the McCain of McCain Feingold. He became the McCain who was pushing hardest among members of his party for reforms to keep money out of politics. Politics. And I would think similarly, you know, deep down inside, he he knows that he did play some role in, in get, giving Sarah Palin as big a stage as she got from him, that he did start this this, you know, snowball rolling down the hill. Yeah, he does. You know, he's not an introspective uh, guy. And, you know, his friends and advisors, people have known him for decades, you know, all made this point to me. He's not the kind of guy that kind of puts himself on the couch um, partly, you know, being a prisoner of war and going through that her- horrific experience, you know, you must have to be able to compartmentalize things just to get through that. Um, but it's not something he will articulate, but it kind of comes through uh, in the subtext of our interviews. And it's definitely something that uh, the, the point that a, a lot of his friends made to me, um, that he is aware of, of his legacy. Um, and he said in private to, to a friend I interviewed that, he regrets having run what McCain calls a, quote, small campaign back in 2008. So I think he does see this as his opportunity. And there's also, a, you know, kind of a family uh, dimension to this. You know, John, one thing that makes John McCain such a compelling politician is he has kind of a heroic, mythic um, element to his biography. And, you know, all of his family, his extended family, were decorated military officers. And his grandfather, he has an office, uh, a picture on the wall of his Senate office, of his grandfather on the deck of the USS Missouri as the Japanese surrender World War II. It's, uh, it's an amazing, iconic photograph. And when John McCain's grandfather returned from the Pacific uh, in 1945, a day after getting home, he dropped dead. So there is this uh, sort of fear, again, it's not something McCain himself will articulate, but his friends talk about it. There's a fear that if he leaves the public stage, you know, he's really going to lose his purpose and this sort of the fear of you know, of, of, uh, of sort of life ending right as you give up uh, your calling. And so I think that's part of it, that McCain sees this as another great fight to keep himself in the game. And uh, again, that's 
makes him such a, a very sort of fascinating, complicated figure to write about. Right. So there's another picture that you tell the story of in your article, and it, it helps answer the question, you know, why why would Russia be the fulcrum as opposed to lots of other things that, that people might find objectionable or rash uh, that have been done in the first 30 days? What's the big deal with Russia? And in some ways, you know, because McCain is 80, he's old enough to remember the Cold War. He's old enough to, to have lived through a long period of his life in which Russia or the Soviet Union was understood to be the arch enemy of the United States. But he's also very aware in a very contemporary way of what life is like under Putin. Tell, tell the story of the, the other photo that you saw in his office. Yeah, he has a heaps of photo uh, uh, next to his desk of Boris Nemstov, who is a, a Russian opposition politician, a, a physicist, a, uh, a, a very well-known figure. He was a well-known figure in, in Russian politics uh, as part of the uh, resistance to Vladimir Putin. And in 2015, uh, Nemstov was, uh, was, had returned to Russia, and McCain had told me that shortly before he returned to Russia, he had met with him in Washington, and he said, Boris, don't go back. You know, they're going to kill you. And, uh, and, and, Bo- and Nemstov said, well, I have to. I love my country. And he went back, and, um, and about a month after he saw McCain, he was shot uh, sh- uh, four times and killed on a bridge just blocks from Red Square. Uh, and many people uh, have speculated since it's that it was a politically motivated uh, assassination. Uh, so McCain takes, you know, uh, the Putin regime's uh, aggression uh, personally. A lot of his friends are part of the Russian opposition movement. Uh, over New Year's Eve, just this past January, he uh, uh, visited with uh, Ukrainian troops on the front line in Ukraine. He's on a sort of personal first name basis with a lot of the pro-Western Ukrainian politicians. And so this is personal for him. You know, when he when he speaks out against Putin, he's not sort of doing it from the high moral plane of uh, of geopolitics. He's doing it from the personal uh, perspective of someone who's seen their friends killed by this guy. Uh, And so that that's why this fight is so important to him. All right, Gabe Sherman. Uh, the article is the cover story in New York Magazine. I believe it comes out on newsstands today. It'll be in my mailbox in, in a day or two, or you can read it online. Thanks for being with us today, though. Thank you. Good to be with you. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to a psychiatrist about the current vogue for speculating on the mental health. wonderful American man. He was a prisoner of war back in the 1970s. In the past, it's mainly been the stuff of political novels and maybe the occasional movie for television. What would happen if the president of the United States had a significant mental disorder? Uh, We didn't find out until later that uh, Richard Nixon was talking to paintings, uh, often under the influence of alcohol uh, in his final days in office. Uh, But we have of late seen a president whose behavior in public is erratic, impulsive, and uh, maybe even not that capable of reading the social cues of the environment that he's in. So to the layperson watching all this, the question might be, well, what's going on with this guy? And from the psychiatric community, sometimes the answer has been silence for a reason we're going to go into right now uh, with Dr. Hank Schwartz. He's the psychiatrist-in-chief at uh, Institute of Living and Hartford Hospital and regional vice president of Hartford HealthCare. Hank Schwartz, welcome back to our airwaves. Hi, Colin. Uh, Good to speak with you. So let's start with why we usually don't hear a lot 
from psychiatrists uh, and other mental health professionals. During the uh, Goldwater-Johnson election, Fact magazine ran a survey of American psychiatrists asking them whether they thought that Barry Goldwater, who many people thought had very extreme views, was mentally ill. And American psychiatrists just got on board and accused Goldwater of having virtually every psychiatric diagnosis on the book, from psychopathy to schizophrenia and uh, deemed him totally incompetent to um, hold office. Well, that was felt to be very problematic because none of those psychiatrists had ever actually interviewed or assessed Goldwater and really were viewing him from afar. So the American Psychiatric Association formulated the Goldwater Rule, which said that it is unethical for psychiatrists to assess a public figure that they have not personally interviewed uh, and evaluated. In extreme times, like the times we're living in right now, that creates a tension for people in the mental health fields. Yeah, and you know, one from, from a layman's perspective over here on the sidelines, one thing we know is the Goldwater rule, as you just described it, is essentially a self-imposed rule. It doesn't have a lot of legal force or anything like that. But even in cases that have more legal force, one thing that we do know uh, for the psychiatric profession as a legal standard is that notion of, is the person in question a danger to himself or others? Obviously, the president of the United States is capable of creating quite a bit of danger. So, I mean, we've seen across the country now a number of people from your profession, uh, voicing their concerns. There was a letter sent to the New York Times last week signed by 35 mental health professionals saying essentially that they they do think that there are certain signs that uh, President Trump is exhibiting do cause them concern about his actual ability to safely conduct himself in office. How much of a free pass is is a situation like this? Well, it still remains um, a conundrum. While the Goldwater Rule doesn't have the force of law, uh, the American Psychiatric Association can remove you from that organization. And if that happens, it has repercussions for obtaining uh, privileges in hospitals that you might apply to. Uh, so there's that on the one side. And, and on the other, there is the, the clamor for information. Consequently, you know, I've come to feel that it is possible to weigh in in a useful way without violating the Goldwater Rule, and that's just by providing the public information about the psychiatric diagnoses that might be pertinent in this particular case. So what you did, uh, and it was in uh, this weekend's Hartford Current, uh, you did an op-ed piece in which rather than attaching a specific diagnosis from the DSM, to Donald Trump, you just sort of laid out some of the symptoms of various personality disorders. You want to give like an example of, I mean, narcissistic personality disorder is the one that probably comes up the most often. Well, that's true. But then if you read the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, you come up with a lot of other terms that people are frequently attaching to Donald Trump. For instance, um, grandiosity, an exaggerated sense of self-importance. A preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success, a sense of being special and unique, as though you are possibly the only person who can do certain things, requirements for excessive admiration, uh, being interpersonally exploitive, lacking empathy, taken right out of the list of criteria for the narcissistic personality disorder. You know, I think it's possible to just lay that out. I think the listener can 
take that information and uh, apply it as he or she sees fit. On the other hand, just to sort of push back for the sake of argument, uh, there's also kind of maybe a possible so what answer. I mean, people go to work every day with personality disorders. You know, they do their jobs. In fact, the goal of your profession in some ways is to take people with personality disorders and other problems and adjust them to normal life as much as possible, allow them to live as conventionally as possible. So, so does it automatically matter if the president of the United States has a personality disorder? Uh, well, that's a very good point. One way to look at it is that it doesn't. People have personality disorders. In fact, people have even more severe illnesses than personality disorders and still function. So having even a disease as severe as schizophrenia or as bipolar disorder, in fact, does not ipso facto state that you are unqualified for office or unable to function in, an, in any particular role. But I think that it does lend some clarification and some understanding to what we're seeing. But let me add, the personality disorders mix and match within these diagnoses. We all, we all have some of these characteristics. Another diagnosis just of interest to the reader, not that I'm assigning the diagnosis to Trump, is one that's called antisocial personality disorder. It's marked by deceitfulness, as indicated by repeated lying, a failure to plan ahead, aggressiveness, irresponsibility, for instance, with regard to your financial obligations to others, and a lack of remorse. And interestingly, while it's not a formal diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, psychiatrists and psychologists have come to another syndrome, which is called malignant narcissism. And this is a, a combination of the very worst aspects of narcissism and psychopathy combined, really making for people who are very difficult to deal with and cause great harm uh, to others. And you really don't want to have a malignant narcissist uh, in your life. Again, the very fact that somebody might have these diagnoses uh, doesn't rule out a capacity to function in any particular role. But it's important to understand if things were to collapse further, I think the importance of understanding a diagnostic perspective would become more important. So you no doubt, no doubt saw the letter from one of your colleagues in psychiatry, Alan Francis, an emeritus psychiatrist at Duke, who helped um, create the DSM standards that we're talking about right now and helped write the actual specs, as it were, uh, for narcissistic personality disorder. He uh, has all kinds of problems with Donald Trump as a president. He's not happy with the president of the United States at all. However, he rejected the idea uh, of applying that disorder to him. And if I understood his rationale, one of the ways of deciding in his mind whether or not you have a personality disorder is, is it making it difficult, if not impossible, for you to function in normal environments? And, and his argument seemed to be, well, if you get elected president of the United States, whatever your problems are, they don't represent this huge impediment. This is a fairly difficult job to get. What did you make of his letter? Well, I know Alan well, and I've communicated uh, with him about his letter, and I, I can say this. At the end of the list of criteria for every personality disorder in the book, it, there is an added requirement that either the person feels distressed about these symptoms, let's call them, or a degree of dysfunction. The gray zone in this argument is, is how you describe dysfunction. 
it it does not require that it it is impossible to function in some capacity in life. For instance, in antisocial personality disorder, there are CEOs of American corporations who have antisocial personality disorder. They may function well in the business world and miserably in their personal lives, but you never know that. So again, without making a judgment about Trump's functionality, is he dysfunctional in some aspects of his life and of his interpersonal relationships? Uh, that would be up to the reader and listener to decide in this case. You know, one of the things I think that we look at, and once again, from those of us who are standing on the lay sidelines, is how people in leadership roles, well, actually, let's use a term that was applied to one of our presidents. Bill Clinton was often described as a great compartmentalizer. Uh, And so there was this sense, I mean, obviously, we know that Bill Clinton's uh, um, impulse control was not everything that it could have been uh, in certain parts of his life. And we know that JFK's impulse control was even worse, right? JFK, he did things that were genuinely dangerous, shared a mistress with a mob boss at one point. So, but one of the things that we hope our leaders will be able to do, no matter what's going on in their heads, is compartmentalize. That's completely correct. And compartmentalization is an important part of relatively healthy functioning. I I mean, it's possible to compartmentalize too much for instance, and not be completely affected by parts of your life that that ought to affect you. But compartmentalization is necessary just, you know, for us to uh, get up in the morning and put our dreams behind us, for instance. Another aspect of these severe personality disorders is the difference between delusional thinking and fantastical thinking. Somebody who uh, compartmentalizes well would be somebody who could take their need for aggrandizement and contain it in situations that are appropriate for that. Uh, Somebody whose need is so great that the world, facts in the world, um, must be distorted in order to meet the requirements of that need for aggrandizement and admiration would be somebody who either has lost or never had uh, this capacity for compartmentalization. Hank, is part of the problem here that we don't have the kind of societal consensus about how psychiatric problems map onto professional performance, not quite the way we do with organic problems, not that, not that we know everything about purely organic issues, but we kind of know, I mean, consensus-wise, we can sort of say, well, if you've got tuberculosis, you shouldn't come to work, and if, you, if you've got real influenza, you probably shouldn't come to work. If you've got a sinus infection, you can probably come to work, unless you're an air traffic controller and you're loaded up with Benadryl and you can barely keep your eyes open, in which case you probably shouldn't come to work. But we can sort of have the those conversations about purely organic diagnosable conditions that have a purely medical model of treatment. But some of the things that we're talking about right now don't really fall into that category. And, you know, 25 different Americans might have 25 different idiosyncratic reactions about how those problems map onto performance. That's completely correct. And the the fact of the matter is, as much as we'd like to think that Psychiatry is a hard medicine in the sense of, in the way that you describe it. It isn't, and psychiatric diagnoses are nuanced, and the qualities and characteristics 
of personality disorders in particular blend with the qualities and characteristics of normal human behavior uh, in ways uh, such that there's, there is no fine line that says, hey, you're, you're sick and infectious today, you need to stay home. I spoke with somebody yesterday, or I, actually, I heard from somebody yesterday, who said that the qualities uh, of the diagnoses that I included in my piece in the current could as well have been applied to President Obama. And after hearing that, I sat back and tried to think about how somebody could see that. And it's conceivable, it's possible for somebody to see many of these qualities uh, in, another, in another person. And that's why, ultimately, the performance of this president and his success in his administration and whether he even survives the first four years of his administration will not be determined by whether he has a mental illness or not. It will be determined by his behavior and his performance, informed by whether he has a mental illness, but in fact, with the Goldwater Rule in place, and even if the Goldwater Rule were not in place, we'll never know because we are not his personal psychiatrist or psychologist. Um, that's a perfect place to end and a very well-stuck landing, as they say in gymnastics. Hank Schwartz is psychiatrist-in-chief at the Institute of Living uh, at Ann Hartford Hospital and regional vice president of Hartford HealthCare. He joined us today. Thanks for your time, Hank. Thank you, Colin. Good to be with you. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. If you're always stealing goodies from a big department store, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. If your pocket's full of little things you never heard before, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. If you want to see what can happen to a country that does nothing about psychiatric disorders in its head of state, just look at Sweden. Also, House Targaryen, with all the dragons and the craziness. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Hazel Cologne. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mike Pence. You can find previously aired episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show at wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, an exploration of shyness, and it'll be available in American Sign Language on the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook. And now, back to Colin. Okay, so uh, two things I want to promote. One of them is the thing you just heard tomorrow. We'll, we're going to do just one of our regular shows. It's going to be about, well, we don't ever do regular shows, but we're, Betsy Kaplan will be producing a show about shyness. Uh, if you knew more about us and about her, you'd realize how fitting that is. Uh, anyway, it'll be just like a regular show that you would normally hear us do, except that also we're doing this new thing. You're probably aware of it by now. We call it Radio for the Deaf, where we, in fact, will be uh, simulcasting it on Facebook Live with two interpreters, two ASL interpreters, um, basically doing the show or interpreting the show uh, as we go. So it'll be available afterwards that way, too. But if um, people in the deaf community want to uh, partake of the show uh, uh, on a live basis, we will have uh, two interpreters doing that on Facebook Live. You have to go to the Colin McEnroe Show page of Facebook to see that happen tomorrow. So that's number one. Number two is a Sunday night, as is uh, the case every year. Uh, we're having a, an Oscar night party um, to benefit uh, Connecticut AIDS. Uh, so um, 
How do you get tickets? So first of all, it's at the Spotlight Theaters in Hartford. And what you do is you just go online and Google Red Carpet Experience AIDS Connecticut, and that'll probably bring you to the tickets page pretty quickly. Or you can go on my personal Facebook page. I've got a link to it right there at the top of the page right now. It's really fun, though. I mean, you can go into one of the theaters and watch the Oscar telecast and, and all that stuff. Or you can eat all this really great food, and there's obviously a bar and all that kind of stuff. And people dress often as their most memorable characters from movies of the year, or they just dress to the nines. They dress like the uh, big Hollywood megastars dress. So, and lots of people who are either from this show or on the nose or whatever, they all come. So that'll be fun if you listen to this show. All right. So moving along here, we decided to take a break from Trump stuff uh, in uh, the final segment because also we're very interested in something which our friends at the New Haven Independent uh, and their affiliated radio station are doing, WNHH being the affiliated radio station. Um, Usually in this country, if you get arrested, um, you run a pretty high chance of having your name and maybe even your mugshot appear either in your local newspaper or these days more likely on any number of online news sites. Uh, It could be the case that uh, way down the road, those charges are dropped or thrown out or whatever. But as you know, things online live forever. So there's a compelling argument to maybe not mention the names of people who've been arrested until there's a little bit more understanding of what's really going on here. Hardly anybody observes that notion. However, Paul Bass is here to tell us. He's the founder and editor of the New Haven Independent and the New Haven community radio station WNHH about their policy. So, Paul, welcome back to our airwaves. And tell us about how you guys have sorted out this question. Well, it's great to hear your voice, Colin. Well, thanks. Good to hear yours, too, Paul. And so we should have mentioned on the record the time you were arrested in New Haven, Jim Morrison, for indecent carriage, right? Because we didn't put your name in. Well, actually, I was um, I, I was initially arrested for... <laughs> I was Mirandized. <laughs> this is true. I, I was in New Haven. I was Mirandized nude. Uh, I had no clothes on, and I was Mirandized. I, I didn't go to a really? full arrest. Yeah, that's actually a true story. However, that's all of the story I'm going to tell. That's it. That's it. That you, you just that's heard. That's all you're going to tell? That's all I will tell, yeah. Uh, wow. Put one of your best people on it. I'm sorry you listen to that. That's not up to me. Anyway, we have a policy of the Independent. We've always had it. The Independent's been out for 12 years. And, in fact, when the Independent was a print newspaper in the 1980s, it had the same policy, which is that it, except under unusual circumstances, which I will enumerate, we do not print the names of people arrested and charged with a crime. We do not put their pictures, their mugshots. The reason is that often they're later found innocent or not guilty, and you haven't had their side. And there have been enough cases over the years here and many other places where someone is falsely charged with a crime. Now, in the age of the Internet, it seemed more important because that's what people see most. That's what clicked on most. That's at the top of Google ranking. So even if your news organization does follow up, on the status of a case, which rarely any news organization does with anything but the most violent and high-profile crimes. That is what future employers and other people see when that person's name comes up. There are definite exceptions. Um, If someone's a public figure, we feel that the public has a right to know about it. You kind of sacrifice that by being a mayor or police chief or getting some kind of public responsibility. If If we get the person's side, we feel comfortable using the name because we feel like then if you read the article, you'd hear there's another side. Or if there's a threat to public safety, we do trust the cops. If they say someone's on the loose right now and they just threw a case, they harmed a child, we put the picture and the name up until the person is caught and we, we take it off. It's controversial. We're sometimes very critical in trying to apply it because the gray areas are fun to try to tease out. 
and you're not always consistent because it's kind of hard to figure out. Um, and that's that's our policy. So we should say that there's an article about this in the New Haven, uh, in the Neiman uh, Journalism Lab website, which is a great place to read about stuff like this. And I hadn't really been all that aware of your uh, policy. And they gave a really interesting example of a situation where there'd been a sweep, a prostitution and John sweep, basically. Uh, and, and so one of the things that uh, often happens in those situations is that local journalism outlets are almost invited slash encouraged uh, to uh, publish the names and the mugshots. You didn't do that, although you were willing to publish the name of one person who was arrested for prostitution because she had an opportunity to tell her story. Now, explain why Actually, that's I important. I didn't put her name. I used her nickname. Her nickname. But I right, did, yeah. She did agree to take a picture, and I felt mugshots are when people look at their worst. They look strung out. They've been on the street. They're feeling terrible. And we didn't use a mugshot. I told her when I interviewed her that I felt like it was important for people to see that the people writing about are human beings. Could I take sort of a... Not a head-on shot, but just to show that you're a person and she was comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And I felt that that, was, that helped humanize the article. Now, you know, you and I, our reporting and journalism careers have been kind of in parallel stuff for a really long time. And so we're both old enough to remember, and this comes up from time to time, it is sometimes the case that city community leaders will argue the opposite way, particularly as regards suburbanites coming into urban areas to buy drugs or solicit prostitution. You'll see community leaders say, you know what, the cost isn't high enough for them. They should be named and shamed instead of being able to plead out, maybe get a really effective lawyer to make the you know charge mainly go away. Then they go back home, forget the whole thing, and these urban problems stay in place. We want people to know who these other people are. What's your answer to that? I think it's a very good point, Colin. Um, they're not the majority. People get rest in our community, so our policy has to do people live here. I would say people are still innocent until proven guilty. So I think there is a good reason to wait until the case is settled, although, as you notice, people often get off. But, yeah, I think there's a case for that. But I would say in the things that we'll get to, we also got pushed back early on from the cops because they said, we want to, people know what good things we're doing in the community. Why do you never print these pictures when you arrest people? I say, all that happens when we print the pictures of 20 straight black people looking terrible when they get arrested is that people get reinforced in their ideas way out of whack with any kind of data or reality about who gets arrested and why in our community. It doesn't make them feel better about the cops. Instead, we work with the police to write stories called Cop of the Week about cops who do good work to show them how they do their work. Um, but I think you have a good point. I think there are gray areas. I think there's the same the John campaign. You know, they haven't been arresting Johns in New Haven. They've just been arresting the hookers. We certainly didn't want to make them a wall of shame. But, yeah, I think I don't think – also, our basic policy, I'm not sure all right, Colin. I mean, I feel comfortable about it. We've, we've talked about it for many years. We, we believe in it. But I hear counter-arguments that are compelling about people have a right to know and need to know about people in their community. Um, I think it's a balancing act of what's more important. I don't think it's censorship. There's some old line reporters get very defensive and hostile at me. I was getting a, a the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission award somewhere in a year and a half ago when I talked about our need to not only push for getting government information released, which is so important, but also to have some responsibility on our own end about what we do and don't publish. And I brought up this idea about how we don't print the names and pictures of the accused. And one veteran editor at a, at a daily intake got so mad at me, blasted me from the podium it's kind of about how, well, he didn't go to Yale. I went to Yale, so he took it as some kind of like, you know, these snot noses are telling us how to do our reporting, but you're just being a government censor and you're picking and choosing what people get to hear. 
And I, you know, I see his point, but I think there are journalists do that every day. When we go to a fire, we decide that we want to ask the question about what's more important. That someone got hurt, who owns the building, the conditions, whether there have been have been um, inspections done enough, or is it about fire safety? We're always deciding what facts to emphasize and not emphasize. Part of our job as reporters is to make those decisions. So they are subjective decisions. We need to evaluate it. We have to see balance what is the public's right need to know versus our responsibility to people reporting on and what kind of community we want to live in. But um, but I do feel comfortable with our position, Colin. Yeah, I, I think this is sort of one of the really interesting bleeding edges uh, of American freedom of information, that it's kind of an amazing thing that, at least theoretically, although, as we know, not in actuality, but at least theoretically, the most rookie reporter or average citizen can walk in to a, a police station and ask to look at the blotter or whatever and, and actually see it. I mean, that's anyway the way it's supposed to work. And so I think you know journalists are inclined to treasure that unusual liberty uh, and, and get too excited about it. But what winds up happening, and, and it's, you know, you've made a great case as to how it can become its own kind of, uh, of urban blight, just sort of covering this kind of stuff without a lot of substance or understanding of the disposition of these cases. But, you know, anybody's domestic inc- incident in which nobody's arrested can wind up in some you know, weekly news police blotter thing. You know, I mean, they're, they're really pretty significant violations of privacy if, in fact, people don't exercise some kind of overarching judgment. Restrictions on privacy, like they can seal an arrest warrant with the name of a gang member who ratted out for the gang member to protect his, his safety, although even there the defense lawyer gets to see those names. And I am not arguing that government should withhold the, the, the information. I believe that we have to be responsible as journalists to use our freedom wisely. I think we have a good Freedom of Information Act in Connecticut, and as you and I both know, we both availed it, that, that we get good information through it. But then we have to hold ourselves accountable and use that responsibility wisely. All right, Paul Bass, we got to go. So great to talk to the founder great and to editor talk to you too, Colin. of the New Haven Independent and the New Haven Community Radio Station, WNHH. We will be back tomorrow with that show about shyness. We've got great shows for you all the rest of the week. Don't miss any of them.